Friends, brothers and sisters, it's a joy and privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, I have the, the privilege of having lunch with your pastor and a group of pastors about once a month uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about Adam is his willingness to, to wait, to sit patiently, and to comment at the appropriate time. Uh, pastors, when you get a group of them together, they are often ready to speak. Uh, and a man who's willing to hold his tongue to take everything in, to think carefully before he speaks is a good man. Uh, you have a good and godly pastor, and I'm grateful to, to partner with him in the ministry of preaching the gospel together. Um, and it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Let me just pray one more time for me. I'm a weak man, and our God is a strong God, and we need him. Uh, and you need him to listen, and I need him uh, and his strength to preach. So would you join me in prayer as we pray one more time together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word preached, so we pray and ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit now. Father, I pray and ask for your Spirit to lead and guide me as we open your word together. Help us all to remember that you are speaking through your word about your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit. So give each one of us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and a will to obey. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If a church does not evangelize, it will fossilize. So said A.W. Pink to his congregation in 1926. If a church does not evangelize, it will fossilize. And remember that evangelism, evangelizing, is not proclaiming your faith. It's proclaiming the faith, scriptures, about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. And fossilizing, of course, reminds us of dead and decaying elements, hidden beneath the surface. So if a church does not evangelize, it will fossilize. This is certainly true for the church as a local institution, and I wonder if it might be equally true for an individual Christian. So that it might be said, also said, if a Christian does not evangelize, he will fossilize. May we, each and every one of us, be found free of such fossilization. May you be found faithful as a local church and as individual Christians to call upon your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers to turn from their sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I would encourage it personally encourage you to read through the book of Acts at some point, perhaps in the next year or so, as it will challenge you to pursue evangelizing over fossilizing, to use Pink's language. And I think that the passage that we're looking at together from God's word, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, will be especially helpful to us in that endeavor. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. I don't want you to be bored, and you will be helped to not be bored by looking at your Bible. So turn in there, either in your solar-powered version or in your battery-powered version. Uh, turn there in your Bibles, and we want to look at this text together. The book of Acts, as you may know, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we watch the early Christian church evangelize. 
In the very first chapter of Acts, Jesus laid out the program that he wanted his disciples to follow, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. In the first seven chapters of Acts, the, the gospel goes out in Jerusalem and its immediate surrounding region. In the first half of the chapter 8, the, the gospel spreads to Samaria. So the gospel is gone in Jesus' program by the time we get to our text from Jerusalem and to Judea and then on to Samaria. And this morning, as we study really the second half of Acts chapter 8, we see a man receive the gospel and return to the ends of the earth. And the mission of Jesus continues on. And in this section, we learn three lessons concerning the spread of the gospel and evangelism. So in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31, we learn that evangelistic initiative begins with God. In Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 38, we learn key ingredients in evangelistic work. What, what do we need to include in our evangelism. And then finally, in Acts chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, we learn that evangelistic work increases the joy of others. So here are the three points that will form the rest of the, uh, the outline of the rest of the sermon this morning. Number one, evangelistic initiative. Number two, evangelistic ingredients. And number three, evangelistic increase. Let's begin with the first point evangelistic initiative. And as we do, follow along in your Bible as I read Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Well, in these verses, we learn that evangelistic initiative, it begins with God, that it occurs through obedient and bold disciples, and that it is especially aimed at those who are currently outside the kingdom of God. In verse 26, notice there, we see that the Lord God moved Philip by means of an angel. This is where we see that evangelistic work begins with God. Evangelism is God's idea. It's his plan for making his salvation in his son known to the world. Only God knew where to find this Ethiopian eunuch. So he gave Philip specific directions through an angel. This is not something that happens every day. And in fact, what we're seeing here is unique to this period of redemptive history. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord directs Philip to the road. And then you see there in verse 29, he directs Philip to the man who needs to be redeemed. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Isn't it moving to think that God has a particular sinner in mind that he wants to save? Christian, think about that fact, that your evangelization and salvation, it began with God. He wanted to come after you and save you. Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe it was your college roommate. Maybe it was your Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was your coworker. Maybe it was your uncle. 
whoever it was, make no mistake. If someone went, it's because they were sent. They were sent by God. God sent someone after you, and he found you. Give thanks to God for his sovereign, sending, saving love toward you in Jesus Christ. Evangelistic work, it begins with God because it's his gracious idea, his gracious initiative. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a devoted and dedicated disciple of Jesus, maybe God wants to save you. Maybe you've been led here or dragged here by someone in your family or a friend. Maybe they've invited you to come. Maybe he has sent a Christian into your life who keeps talking to you about Jesus. Why not give yourself up to God? Maybe he's after you. And maybe today is the day to bow your knee to the Lord Jesus. Philip, this man here who goes to speak to this Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, he had actually been previously engaged in public ministry. And now he is about to undertake this private ministry to this Ethiopian eunuch. God, he may choose to send his servants to sprawling cities, or he may choose to send them to a single chariot. Christian, God may be pleased to use, to use you to save many in your lifetime, or he may be pleased to use you to save just one. Whatever the case may be, your calling in the midst of it all is to be obedient and bold. That's just what Philip was. He was obedient and bold. In verse 26, you see there, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. And what do we read that Philip did? What, he, he rose and he went there in verse 27. Philip obeyed, but that was not the last time he obeyed. Again, in verse 29, we read, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And what do we read of Philip in verse 30? So Philip ran. He ran to him. Philip's immediate and joyful obedience ought to be a challenge to us all. We've been given a great commission. If we belong to Jesus, we've been commanded, we've been told to go and make disciples of all nations. So Christian, are you obeying? Are you going? Are you sharing the good news when you seem to have this strong sense that I should really talk to that person over there about Jesus? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you're in a room, a, a party, or a family gathering of some kind, and you feel this distinct impression that you need to go and speak to a particular person about the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying that all of those experiences or impulses are necessarily from God, but maybe some are. I don't know. You probably don't know either. We may not be able to come to a firm conclusion about a subjective feeling, but we can come to a clear conclusion about an objective command, one that we've been given from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we're told to go and tell. And it would be better for us to tell more people more often than not. Be obedient to the command to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be obedient and be bold. That's what Philip was. Think about all of the ways that Philip would have been tempted to actually fear this man sitting in the chariot. This Ethiopian eunuch he was someone. He's riding in what must have been a majestic chariot. And Philip is just strolling up to him in the middle of the desert. He was undoubtedly personally wealthy. He was basically the secretary of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. We're not told uh, that he went to Jerusalem to do business, but to worship. While it's possible that he did business for the queen of Ethiopia while he was there in Jerusalem, it seems like the main purpose of the trip, according to the text, was to do business with God to worship the Lord. And the implication of the text is that he wasn't driving the chariot. He was seated. So he probably had at least one servant 
he had um, a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, and that could not have been cheap. Those were expensive. He could also read, so he must have been well-educated. So consider the, the boldness of Philip to approach this chariot and to speak and to ask, do you understand what you're reading? Right, to a, a wealthy, a powerful, a, a well-educated man, ordinarily that would have been an insulting question. But it's a bold question from Philip. Imagine finding a, a military general officer somewhere in a local coffee shop open, with a Bible open and reading it. Imagine walking up to him and saying, do you understand what you're reading? That would be a, a bold question to at least a man who's well provided for, who is uh, intelligent and well-educated, certainly. Would you have the boldness to ask him, do you understand what you're reading? What about at your office? Maybe there's a friend or a coworker who's sitting there with their Bible open. Do you have the boldness to ask them? Do you understand what you're reading? We shouldn't assume that everyone understands what they're reading. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've often found that many are saved through Bible reading. But usually there is a faithful Christian who comes alongside them and who helps them to understand what they're reading. So brothers and sisters, let us not be intimidated or fearful. Let us be bold. We serve the sovereign king. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we have been commissioned to be ambassadors for Christ. And God himself makes his appeal through us. It's our duty to implore the lost on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So let us not shrink back from proclaiming his offer of peace and reconciliation. In God's design, evangelistic work occurs through obedient and bold disciples. And that's what we're called to be for the glory of God. Philip's evangelism to this Ethiopian eunuch also shows us that evangelistic work is oriented, aimed at those who are outside of the kingdom of God. We might think that this man was already a part of the kingdom of God, given the fact that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and that he was reading scripture, as we see there in verse 28. But attendance at public worship and reading the Bible are not the seal of salvation. Let me just say that again, since we've gathered here to do that today. Attendance at public worship and reading the Bible are not the seal of salvation. Now, as Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To be saved, we have to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Yes, this man had gone to the temple to worship, but as the narrative unfolds, it is clear that he has not come to worship the one who is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes in the temple. The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And he said, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Yes, Jesus is the one who through whom we come to offer our worship. To give our worship to God. This man, this Ethiopian eunuch, is a man who is outside of the kingdom of God. He doesn't know who Jesus is yet. And the fact of the matter is, his experience at the corporate worship there in Jerusalem, at the temple there, testified to the fact that he's outside of the kingdom of God. He was an Ethiopian and therefore likely a Gentile. Uh, we should think of him as standing very far off. Given his ethnicity, he was only permitted to go so far into the temple complex. In fact, Gentiles were only permitted, permitted into the, most, the outermost court of the temple, often called the, the court of the Gentiles. So when we think of this man going to worship as a Gentile, we should think of him as standing far outside, 
perhaps e- even outside the full participation of worship. That, that court, that court of the Gentiles, was hardly a place for focused worship. Uh, animals and other items were bought and sold in that court. It was a bank, a zoo, and a marketplace all rolled into one. It, it would have been difficult for anyone to worship in that court. So think about the difficulty that you have praying alone in, uh, in your home, at your kitchen table or in your office, or in your car, or in your bedroom, or, or perhaps even in this room. It's difficult sometimes to maintain focus. Now imagine this man's difficulty with all of those animals and all of that interaction taking place there. In this best case scenario, this court of the Gentiles was as far as the Ethiopian eunuch could go in. Some scholars have suggested that this man might have had a Jewish lineage, but I think that's exceedingly unlikely. But even if that is the case, there was something else that was keeping him from full participation in the worship of God. He was also a eunuch. Uh, A eunuch is a castrated male, and he no doubt experienced some public scorn for his physical condition. Uh, Sometimes a man was made a eunuch voluntarily. Uh, Other times, becoming a eunuch was an involuntary action. And at the end of the day, this man could not father children. And for that reason, in the ancient world, many eunuchs were employed in royal courts. Their physical condition would serve as a guard of uh, romantic involvement with the queen, which was something that every king wanted. While this man's physical condition might have served as an added layer of protection for the queen of Ethiopia, it stood in the way of him gathering and participating in Israelite worship. So the Old Testament, the Old Testament law forbid it. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we read this. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. As I said, the the best case scenario was that this man was permitted to enter into the outer court of the Gentiles. And maybe he didn't make it in at all. As one commentator said, in his case, as a eunuch, full membership in the congregation of Israel was not even possible because of his physical blemish. He could visit the temple in Jerusalem, as he had done, but he could never enter it. This man, as we see from our text, he's, he's interested in the kingdom of God. But apart from Christ, he was outside of it. He had experienced something of that in his attempt to worship there in Jerusalem and being kept outside the temple. Maybe he was discouraged by his physical deformity, that it kept him at a distance from the worship of God. Well, the Bible teaches us that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all outside of the kingdom of God. And it's not our physical defects or deformities that bar us from worship or keep us outside of the kingdom of God. It is our sin. It is our spiritual depravity. It is our spiritual defects, our spiritual deformity that marks us as those outside of the kingdom of God. And we all have that spiritual deformity. We are all sinners. And the hope of Acts 8 is that no one, is outside the reach of God's kingdom. Everyone is invited in, no matter your spiritual depravity, no matter your spiritual defect, no matter your spiritual deformity. God is ready to receive you into his kingdom through his son. You need not fear your sins if you know the Savior. And the fact of the matter is, you need someone to guide you into the truth about Jesus Christ. We, we all do. That's what Philip was there to do. Notice that the Ethiopian eunuch invited Philip up into his chariot to explain what he was reading. Friend, do you have this kind of humble attitude? Do you have a willingness to learn and be instructed and taught? Or do you have all of the answers? And let me just suggest to you that Google or Siri 
or Alexa are not going to be your best friend in this endeavor. A Christian who will open their Bible and read it with you is going to be your best friend in this endeavor. So invite a mature Christian into your life and ask them to explain the Bible to you. And Christian, recognize that this, this is the work of evangelism, explaining the Bible. Christian, you are to go to those who don't know Jesus, who do not understand God's plan of salvation, who are not yet members of Jesus' kingdom, and your calling is to help those outside of Jesus' kingdom find their way in. This is what God wants you to do. It's his idea, his initiative, and he especially wants you to make Christ known to those who are currently outside of his kingdom. At the same time, Christian, I want to encourage you to give thanks to God for those who explained the way of Christ more accurately to you. Give thanks that they were bold and obedient, that they saw your need, perhaps even before you saw your need for the Lord Jesus. Children, let me encourage you. Children, give thanks to God for your parents. Give thanks to God that they sit at the dinner table or on the couch or on the edge of your bed and that they open up their Bible to you. Give thanks to God that they lead you in family worship. Give thanks to God that they bring you to corporate worship here. Give thanks for your Sunday school teachers and your youth group leaders. From time to time when I'm tucking my kids into bed at night, I pray for the Sunday school teachers by name. Mom and dad, let me encourage you to do that. Pray for those Sunday school teachers, either on the way to church or somewhere else. Pray for them by name that the Lord be pleased to work through them to lead your children to a better understanding of Jesus Christ. I pray that God would give them grateful hearts. And so pray for these teachers. You should pray uh, that your children have grateful hearts for their teachers as well. Christian, give thanks to your pastors and your teachers who discipled you. They are great gifts of God to you. Give thanks to God for Adam and tell him you're thankful for him. Uh, give thanks to God for Dave and Rick and Stephen and John and Jeremy. Elders are shepherds. They're gifts from God, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And you should give thanks that God has given you such gifts in your church family. Well, we've seen that evangelistic initiative begins with God that it occurs through obedient and bold disciples, and that it is especially aimed at those who are currently outside of the kingdom of God. Next, we learn that key ingredients in evangelistic work are the contents of Scripture, with Christ as the center of our proclamation and conversion as a goal. This is what we learn in our second point, evangelistic ingredients. And follow along now as I read Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 38. Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 38. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Well, from these verses, 
we see that one of the first ingredients in evangelism is scripture. Uh, this is the best possible evangelistic scenario, isn't it? I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch is already reading the Bible. That's what we want. We want our evangelistic conversations to be this easy, don't we? We want them to start here. Well, we always want them to start at the scripture, don't we? It's always what the content of evangelism is actually in the book of Acts. So if you were to read through the book of Acts, you would see that all throughout the book, as Christ is proclaimed, scripture is the foundation from which he is proclaimed. So just think back to Acts chapter 2 and Peter on the day of Pentecost. He preached from Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter urged his hearers to repent so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, he was proclaiming Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. And when Stephen preached to his accusers, he appealed to such scriptures as Deuteronomy 18, 15, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, and Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. All throughout Acts, scripture is the content of the evangelistic message because it is scripture that teaches us about Jesus Christ and our need for him. Here, the disciples of Jesus are simply following Jesus' own example. When Jesus wanted to reveal who he was and what he came to do, what did he do when he stood up in the synagogue in the Gospel of Luke? He read from the book of Isaiah, didn't he? He read from Isaiah 61. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus taught his disciples that the entire Old Testament pointed to him. Christian, there are a number of books that are helpful out there for, for personal evangelism. There are a number of books that we can read with our unbelieving friends and family members. We can certainly make use of them. That the book, the book that we should make the most use of in our evangelism is the Bible. God is pleased to work through his word. So, so what do we read in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11? We read this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the thing in which I sent it. What about Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12? We read this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Brothers and sisters, God works through his word. That's why we set aside time to do this, because we know God works through his word. Just think about the conversion of Timothy. Do you remember what book his mother and grandmother used? Do you remember how he was made wise unto salvation according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15? God used the Old Testament scriptures in Timothy's conversion. Brothers and sisters, as you go about the work of evangelism, ask your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers if they will read the Bible with you. You could say, yes, 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 I understand that you have something against Jesus, but have you ever read a biography about Jesus? We've actually got four of them in the Bible. We can start with the shortest one if you want. We can read the Gospel of Mark. It's just 16 chapters, or we can go for the longest one. I'm happy to read any of them with you. But before you cast your life against Jesus and decide not to follow him, you should know who he is and what he came to do. You should hear an eyewitness testimony about him. So let's, let's read it together and talk about it. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's a great way to begin an evangelistic work. Ask your friends and family if they've actually read a biography of Jesus. Let's ask them to read about Jesus and learn about him directly from the word. Now, I, I know that the Ethiopian eunuch was the one who asked for help, but there's no reason that we can't turn the tables on our friends and family members and ask them to read the scriptures with us and, and to ask them as we read, do you understand what you're reading? 
and then come alongside them and help to explain it some more. Notice what Philip does there in verse 35. Philip opens his mouth and he explains the scriptures. Christian, this is what you have to do in order to be doing evangelism. I'm sure you've heard that terrible phrase, that expression, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, that is erroneous teaching. It's been corrected a thousand times. The truth is, as someone once said, we must preach the gospel, and because it is necessary, we must use words. Brothers and sisters, we have to open our mouths and speak to be doing evangelism. And what Philip is doing here, reading the scriptures, is explaining, is what you actually want to be doing, uh, want to be, have, have men be doing from this pulpit week in and week out. You want to seek to have godly, qualified men stand up and explain the scriptures week in and week out. You need their guidance in understanding the scriptures as well. And you especially want men beginning with the scriptures and making a beeline for the Savior. That's what Philip did, wasn't it? Look at verse 35. So he said, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, while we may have to have some contextual conversations or some apologetic conversations about God, perhaps the creation of the world in the space of six days, you must always remember that in your evangelism, you need to get to Christ. Apologetics, defending the faith, or answering contextual questions are useful tools in evangelism. But defending the faith or giving context is different than proclaiming the one in whom we must place our faith. Christ needs to be the center of your proclamation for he is the center of the scriptures. And what scripture was this Ethiopian eunuch asking about? We read it earlier in the service. He was asking about Isaiah 53. It's a beautiful portrait of Christ and his suffering for sinners. Luke quotes the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of Isaiah 53 here in Acts chapter eight. That's why there's probably a few word differences of what we're finding here, what we read earlier. But let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, solar powered or battery powered to Isaiah 53. Because I I think it would be useful for us to brainstorm about how Philip might have evangelized this Ethiopian eunuch straight from this text. Philip could hardly ask for a better text to have this evangelistic conversation from. Uh, We won't read it, but I I want you to look at it. Use a a kind of a sanctified imagination to think about what Philip might have said to this man. Right from verses 1 and 2 there in Isaiah 53, Philip might have told them that Jesus, he lived an unassuming life. That there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would draw so many to him. And and far from being desired, he was despised. You see that in verse 3. And and if you know, dear eunuch, the story about Jesus, as you maybe heard it on the streets of Jerusalem, he he was harassed and harangued, he was beaten and whipped and crucified, right? According to verses four to six, Jesus took our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Don't, don't you think that Philip would have said, Jesus was crucified and crushed so that sinners like you and me might have peace with God and be reconciled to God? Do you know that, dear eunuch? Do you know that you are a sinner? Your greatest need is not your physical deformity. It's not your current circumstances with respect to your job in Ethiopia. No, your greatest need is your spiritual deformity and your spiritual depravity. Do you know that your greatest need is not your physical injury, but your spiritual iniquity? And did you know that Jesus suffered and died for them? Christian, think 
about reading the Bible like that with your unbelieving friends. Tell them that these promises about the Messiah are for them if they would believe upon him. And notice verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. These, these are the verses that Luke quotes there in Acts chapter 8. They predict what the gospel counts affirm or confirm. Philip no doubt told the eunuch that in his trials and in his death, Jesus carefully used his lips. This revealed Jesus' innocence. After all, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And during his trials, during Jesus' trials, indeed during his whole life long, only righteous and just words came out. Think about your own life for a minute, your own speech. How often do sinful words slip out into our speech when we are under pressure? It was not so with Jesus. He was innocent. He was sinless. And though he was perfectly innocent, he endured unjust trials in silence. And when he died, he was, as verse 8 says, cut off from the land of the living. He suffered as our substitute. He was punished for the transgressions of his people, verse eight. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, according to verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12, Jesus had to die because God had purposed to make many to be accounted righteous. You see that in verse 11? Jesus died to make an unrighteous person like you Righteous in God's sight. The holiness, righteousness, and justice of God require that not only should his servant be sinless, verse 9, but that his servant should receive the punishment for the sins of his people. Jesus, he didn't die because he sinned. No, no, no. He died because his people had sinned. Jesus was free of sin. But his people? Oh, they. They had spiritual depravity. They had spiritual deformity. They had spiritual defects. And because God is just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so the transgressions of God's people received a righteous punishment, a just punishment, a holy punishment in the servant who represents them. This servant, dear eunuch, this servant is Jesus. And for the sins of his people, the servant was rewarded with God's just punishment. He was paid their wages for working in sin on the cross. But he was also rewarded with something else too. He would be rewarded with an offspring that he would see. Do you see that there in verse 10? He would be rewarded with an offspring that he would see. In other words, he would die. But that he would live again. And he would be given the spoils of his victory. A people from the nations. That's you, dear eunuch. You're not a Jew. You're a Gentile. You're from the nations. And he died for a person like you. He is this ser servant. He is the seed who would crush the head of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3. He is the seed of Abraham, would be, who would be the blessing to the nations for an Ethiopian like you. He's the Messiah, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles like you. He is the Messiah for a people who do not trust in their own righteousness, but who trust in him and in his work. He came for someone like you, friend. D don't you think Philip would ask, do you trust in this servant? Do you trust in Jesus? Did he bear your sin, as verse 12 says? I imagine that Philip could hardly contain himself. Here is this man who's been an outcast and an outsider, and Philip wants him to be welcomed in to the kingdom of God. This man has been alienated. 
He's been a stranger and a foreigner to the promises of God. And Philip, because conversion is one of his aims, wants to persuade this man that he has a share in the promises of God. He wants to persuade him that he has a share in the messianic kingdom of God that has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. We're told that Philip began with this scripture and the scroll keeps going. So he must have kept going. The eunuch had a big scroll. So why don't you scroll in your Bible over to Isaiah 56 or scroll down in your Bible to Isaiah 56. I, I imagine that Philip would have invited him to turn here because there's a passage that directly addresses eunuchs there in Isaiah 56. There are promises for people like you, dear eunuch, in Isaiah's scroll. So remember, this eunuch, he's been shut out from the worship of God in Jerusalem due to his ethnicity and due to his deformity. And notice what Isaiah promises. You can almost hear the eunuch, uh, Philip say to the eunuch, look at God's promises concerning Jesus' kingdom to eunuchs who trust in him. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner, that's the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to say, say to the Lord, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him who besides those already gathered. Do you see the I wills in this passage in Isaiah 56? Do you see what Isaiah promises foreigners and eunuchs in the messianic kingdom? This eunuch who has been shut out from God's house, that temple in Jerusalem. And here are these precious promises which say, in the kingdom of my son, you are welcomed in. Your sacrifices are accepted. Your prayers are heard. I'm going to give you a name better than the name of sons and daughters. You are welcomed at my table. You are my child. These are the promises that are held out to this eunuch. And is there any better news than this? Then God in his grace would love and accept us into his family because of his son, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, Today I say to you, it doesn't matter your spiritual deformity. It doesn't matter your spiritual defect. Friend, it does not matter. Jesus can heal and cleanse you of all sin. W what is your spiritual depravity, your spiritual deformity, your spiritual defect that you think has to keep you at a distance from God? What is it? Is it, is it greed? Is it pride? Is it lust? Lust for power, the praise of men? Do you, do you take what's not been given to you? Do you steal your neighbor's chastity through long looks or adultery or pornography or homosexuality? Or are you in an immoral relationship? Are you addicted to drugs or alcohol? Are you selfish or self-serving or self-centered or self-justifying? 
Is your spiritual deformity deceit or hypocrisy? Is it covetousness or envy? Is it meddling and gossiping? Is it rebellion against authority? What is your sin? This man does not remain outside the kingdom of God and you don't have to remain outside the kingdom of God either. There is a way in. There is no spiritual deformity that Jesus cannot heal. So stop standing outside the kingdom of God and come in through Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of the sins of his people. So turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And, and do you see, if you can, turn back to Acts chapter 8. Do you know what the eunuch says? He says, I want to go in. I want to go all the way in. So turn back to Acts chapter 8 and find verse 36. See it with your own eyes. When the Ethiopian eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Or literally immersed. He's saying, yes, I, I want in. I want to go all the way in and under. Immerse me in the Savior and in the sign that portrays what he has done for me. That he's been He's died and he's been raised for the complete forgiveness of all of my sins. Notice, too, that this baptism, or literally immersion, required lots of water. I know I'm on a Baptist soapbox here, but I'm in a Baptist church and I'm a Baptist preacher. So this is completely allowed and justified. I say immersion in the place of baptism because baptism is not a translation of a Greek word. It's a transliteration of a Greek word into English. Immersion is a translation. That's what it means to baptize, to immerse. And those who are baptized, those who are immersed, are to be those who have been converted, those who believe. In short, baptism is to follow belief. This is just the way that Jesus taught his disciples to do it in the Great Commission. So in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, baptism comes after conversion. And one of Philip's aims was certainly to see this man converted. It wasn't the only aim. Surely obedience to God, faithfulness to his mission, uh, boldly declaring the truth and the glory of Jesus were also aims. But conversion is also an aim of evangelism. While we recognize that we are not, we are not the authors of conversion. While we recognize that the power to convert belongs to God alone. It is our calling to seek to persuade men and women of the truth of God's word, of his grace and mercy, so that people may be converted and persuaded that Christ is willing and able to save them. Well, friends, we've learned that evangelistic initiative, that it begins with God, that it occurs through obedient and bold disciples, and that it is especially aimed at those who are outside of the kingdom of God. And we've learned that key ingredients in evangelistic work are the contents of scripture with Christ as the center of our proclamation, and conversion as a goal. Let's turn now and briefly consider our third and final point, and this one is much shorter. Here's evangelistic increase. Take a look at verses 39 to 40 of Acts chapter 8. Verse 39. And they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Here we learn that evangelistic work increases the joy of others, it increases our joy, and the number of people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. After he was baptized, notice the Ethiopian eunuch's reaction there in verse 39. He went on his way rejoicing. 
being received into God's kingdom brings rejoicing. Everywhere Philip went, if you, if you uh, followed his ministry in the book of Acts, you would see that everywhere Philip preached, he brought joy. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, after Philip preached in Samaria, we read that there was much joy in that city. And of course, what do we read here of this Ethiopian eunuch? He went on his way rejoicing. But don't forget what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. He said this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Christian, in your evangelism, you have the privilege of bringing joy to those on earth as well as to those in heaven. Though it's not in the text, I dare say that our evangelistic work increases our own joy. I've never heard of a Christian decreasing in joy because they've been evangelizing. I've only heard of brothers and sisters increasing in regret when they've not evangelized. So, for the joy of your soul, for the joy of others, for the joy of the angels in heaven, for the joy of your God, proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. Share the good news with others. And notice that Philip, he finds himself at a new place. No, Philip did not apparate, and he did not take a port key to Azotus. For the Star Trek fans, or perhaps I should say fan among us, uh, there, the answer is also no. He was not beamed up. Philip was not beamed up or teleported to Azotus. That said, Philip was divinely carried by the Spirit of the Lord to a place some 20 miles away. You should not expect that to happen leaving church today, that you'll be divinely carried uh, to some place 20 miles away. Now, this is certainly unusual. It's not something we should expect to take place in our lives. What we should understand here, though, is the gospel is now going to a region where the Philistines, a historic enemy of God's people, lived. God is sending his gospel to his enemies. Personally, I find that phrase at the beginning of verse 40 somewhat humorous, right? Suddenly, Philip finds himself at a city. The idea is that he suddenly discovers that he's there. He's at Azotus. And what does he do? He keeps going. He keeps preaching the good news about Jesus until he reaches Caesarea. That was a city likely some 50 miles away from Azotus. And in Caesarea, it, uh, Caesarea was a city established by Herod the Great and it had a number of proud citizens that needed to hear the good news of Jesus. Not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And as Philip goes, more and more people hear the good news about Jesus. Christian, wherever you find yourself, preach the gospel. I was talking with this about a member of my church. The Lord is moving his family to Thailand. And I told him, you need to tell your children, when you move there for your job, you need to think like missionaries when you get there, right? You need to tell your son that wherever he's at in a park, you need to invite people to church. In fact, wherever you are here, while you're here, here in the state still, you should think of yourself as a missionary, inviting people to hear and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, think of yourself as a missionary and you're calling to preach the gospel. And just think of where the good news of Jesus has gone in Acts chapter 8 alone. The good news about Jesus had gone from Jerusalem and through Samaria and then through the Ethiopian eunuch. The good news about Jesus was on its way to Africa as he returned. Through Philip, the good news of Jesus about Jesus had gone to the Philistines and then on to Caesarea. God is sending his gospel out, his message about his Messiah who receives sinners into his kingdom. The message of Jesus moves on. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, we've learned that evangelistic initiative, that it begins with God, that it occurs through obedient and bold disciples, and that it is especially aimed at those who are outside of the kingdom of God. 
we have learned that key ingredients in evangelistic work are the contents of Scripture, with Christ as the center of our proclamation and conversion as a goal. And we have learned that evangelistic work increases the joy of others and our joy and the number of people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And it strikes me that we need to keep moving. Have you ever been in a situation where you are so tired, but you just have to keep moving, otherwise whatever you're doing, you're just going to stop? Maybe you're, you're running a marathon if you made that poor decision, or maybe you're raking leaves, right? You just, I just have to keep going, because if I stop, I'm not going to finish this job. Well, it strikes me that the same may be true about evangelizing. Maybe when we stop evangelizing, we start fossilizing. So Christian, don't sit down in your walk with Christ. Stand up and speak. Christian, if you are discouraged in your evangelism, if you feel defeated and downcast, just remember this Ethiopian eunuch. He was far off and he was brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how God welcomed him into the kingdom of his most beloved son. Remember that, remember that he's done the same with you. Remember that Isaiah 53 and the suffering of the Savior for your sins. Remember Isaiah 56 and that the Lord plans to bring you to his holy mountain. That he will make you joyful in his house of prayer. That he will receive you in. Once you were an outcast and an outsider and now because of Jesus, you are an adopted child of God. The only way that you as a church or you as a Christian will keep evangelizing and therefore keep from fossilizing is if you keep your heart and hope fixed on the one whom the evangel, the good news, is about. If you familiarize yourself with Christ, then you will evangelize for Christ. May God be pleased to give us such grace. Let us pray for that now together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your sovereign saving and sending love to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the hearts that are weary and downcast this morning, who are discouraged by their evangelism. Father, we pray and ask that you would reinvigorate each one of us, that you would cause us to be obedient and bold for the glory of Christ's name. Father, we pray too for those who have gathered here with us this morning, who feel distant and far off from you. Father, we pray and ask that you would draw them near through Jesus Christ. Help them to see in the conversion and the salvation of this Ethiopian eunuch something of a hope that they have in Jesus Christ, that there is a Savior who gave his life for them, that he was laid down, he laid down his life on the cross to die for their sins, that he was lifted up from the grave so that they might be forgiven of their sins, and that he will return again to bring us to himself and to give us the name that, that, that is welcomed in your house. Father, we pray and ask that you would give us the grace to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ this day. And every day you give us life and breath. For the glory and honor of Jesus, we pray. Amen.